Luke's Gospel, chapter 6 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to chapter 6, verse 17, while we're finding our way there uh, with, uh, and not with the intent to uh, distract you in any way, but uh, in case you aren't aware, after the service there will be soft serve ice cream out in the courtyard and a three-day kind of weekend, and we like to do that, and so great fellowship that'll happen out there. And uh, tonight that might be um, uh, softer serve ice cream, or you'll have to eat it uh, quickly, but I don't want you to miss out on that by uh, being unaware. Uh, chapter 17, and he, that is Jesus, came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. I mean, you can imagine what a, what a scene just longing to, to touch him, for power went out from him and healed uh, them all. And then in the midst of all of this, he lifted up his eyes uh, toward his disciples, and he said, and what comes forth now is known as the um, Sermon uh, on the Plain. So Jesus has uh, uh, prayed he has chosen 12 from among a very large group of his disciples or followers to become uh, his apostles. Uh, the popularity of Jesus at this point is apparent on the page as we see people coming not only from all over uh, 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 Israel, but coming even from uh, adjoining nations and lands to come and to both hear him speak, but also to receive, his, hear his teaching and to receive the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, principally and, and power to heal and then power to deliver them of a demon. I mean, I've never, I've never been demon-possessed. I can't imagine uh, the horror of living that kind of a life. And where do you take that? Where do you take demonic possession? Where do you take demonic oppression? in this world. There's only one place you can go for deliverance, and they knew it from the reports that filled the land and beyond uh, concerning him. This sermon uh, 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 that's called on the plain, or the sermon on the level place you may see in, in your Bible, it's named uh, uh, after the fact that we're told in verse 17 that Jesus delivered it while standing on a level place. There are a lot of uh, Bible students and Bible scholars who uh, will try and work things in such a way to declare that this is really the Sermon on the Mount, but it is uh, Luke's version of Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. But clearly, we're, in terms of the description of where this sermon is given, it's different. There are uh, very, very uh, major differences. So there's a lot of similarity, but major differences in this sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. They're two entirely different uh, sermons, though they overlap. Now, today we live in, uh, with the blessings of having sermons recorded, uh, having going online, and you can listen to sermons 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the accessibility to sermons. 
and uh, Bible teaching, great Bible teaching. And, but in those days, uh, there weren't any of those things. And so when Jesus teaches there at the Sea of Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount and those truths, it isn't like, okay, we got that for the record in Matthew, no need to say this any longer. Uh, no, it was a, a very finite number of people that listened to that sermon in that environment. So of course Jesus is going to take those same truths and he's going to declare them over and over and over again as a part of his teaching ministry with particular changes uh, that the Holy Spirit would want him to make and depending on where he's delivering it and to who he's, he's delivering it. And so it's an entirely different uh, sermon that, that he, he gives in the sense of a different location and, and differences related uh, to it. I remember the, um, reading a biography on G. Campbell Morgan and uh, one of the most uh, amazing Bible teachers of the last century. And uh, Campbell Morgan, well, he loved to teach the Bible. And that's what pastors uh, love to do as a part of their calling. And uh, he once declared, I would rather teach a hundred sermons than uh, sit through one deacon's meeting. And a deacon's meeting is what we know as a board meeting today. And thankfully, our board meetings are very, very peaceful uh, in this church. But he didn't have a great concern for kind of the nitty-gritty of, of how a church operated and all of those decisions He's really focused on the Word. And I remember one time uh, reading as well that he got up and he introduced a sermon from one of the Psalms to a congregation, and he announced and said, this is the 103rd time I have taught this message. And uh, that, by the time you've taught something 103 times, I mean, it has been by the Spirit of God just winnowed down to perfection. I mean, every portion of it is going to do uh, exactly the weighty thing that it's in, intended to do. We don't have that kind of luxury today. Any sermon that's taught uh, uh, that would be a G. Campbell Morgan type sermon uh, is recorded and it's around the world in 48 hours. And then you feel self-conscious repeating it. And, and so it was a different age than it is, uh, is now. Uh, additionally, Campbell Morgan was able to teach something 103 times without any sense of, of a self-consciousness related to it because they weren't recording sermons back then. Uh, he died right after World War II. There's only one, record, one recorded sermon of Campbell Morgan uh, that exists today. So a different age, a different time. And so uh, repetition was necessary by virtue of, of the, the, the lack of, uh, of tech technology. It is important for us to realize who this sermon is directed to, and we're told very, very specifically in verse 20 that this sermon is directed to His disciples, to us as Christians. This sermon is not a sermon to the world telling them uh, how it is that they can live a life that is uh, proper and right in God's eyes, and in doing so, uh, live a life that warrants them one day entering into heaven. Uh, the, what this sermon is is directed to Christians, and it tells us that because, in essence, what it communicates is because we are Christians, this is how we are to live as representatives of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Imagine 
God calls us ambassadors of Christ. Uh, To be a Christian is to represent God, to represent Christianity in the world that is all around us. Imagine being given that responsibility, that privilege, and then have no instruction at all from God in terms of how to conduct ourselves as ambassadors and how to properly represent the kingdom of God. And so this tells us how to do that. One of the things that I've always liked, it's a, it was something I, I, I read very early in my Christian life, and it stuck with me the way that those kind of things do for all of us. And, and the, the saying goes something like this, that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible uh, through the obedience of God's people. And one of the reasons that that encourages me is I'm probably li- uh, like you, where we live our lives, we obey God, we do all the things that we do, we wear all the hats that we wear, and we can look around our lives and think, what difference is it making? doesn't seem to be making any difference at work. It doesn't seem to be making any difference at all, whether I obey God or I don't obey God. But that, that little glimpse of that saying into obedience, is, it communicates an important reality. Because whether we realize it or not, every time we obey God, Every time we obey God in what he writes here, Jesus writes here in the Sermon on the Mount, it is like a spiritual explosion happens on that scene. Uh, No matter what is happening, however coarse or however dark or however what it is, as we obey God in that environment and what we do or what we say, the kingdom of God is manifest for that moment in that situation. It's revealed to everyone present, there's another king and another kingdom in this world, and I am a part of that kingdom. And it keeps us from becoming discouraged in thinking that my life isn't making any difference. And so God asks us to give him this in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit as ambassadors. Then it's up to him to make uh, our obedience powerful in people's lives. And of course, he will, uh, he will do that. So this sermon is written to Christians. It's not a recipe for how to live a generally moral life and then one day get into heaven. And that's a, that is a prevailing view among many people who uh, don't ha- obviously haven't read the Bible or read the introduction, introductory verses related to the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. Both of them are declared to be uh, teaching uh, disciples. In fact, I just heard it a couple of weeks ago. You might be aware that the Republicans and Democrats are not getting along right now. And, uh, and, and so there, we're in the middle of this um, second kind of the negotiation for this second kind of rollout of of checks and support and this kind of things for individuals and states related to uh, COVID-19. And of course, they're as widely divided t- uh, tonight as ever they were in, in the beginning. And, uh, and I have my opinions and I'll keep them to myself and you do the same at church. So, but uh, one of the, it was interesting, one of the Democrat uh, uh, 
uh, representatives uh, spoke up and declared that those Republicans ought to read the Sermon on the Mount and uh, then come to their decision. And, and here's this prevailing idea that if you just live by the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that that's what it's about, good moral teaching that'll land you on the right side of your decision-making, and yet it's, it's nothing uh, of the sort. And so this is, uh, this is who it's written to, and uh, a little bit of the uh, background uh, related to it. He begins even uh, here as Jesus teaches, he begins with Beatitudes in verse 20, even as he did in the Sermon on the Mount. And he declared, I mean, imagine here he is, he's speaking to this hungry crowd spiritually, hungry for healing, hungry for uh, the power of God. And he said, blessed uh, to the disciples among them, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, uh, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets." And so Jesus here uh, gives these, uh, these beatitudes as he's uh, laying them out. And the, the key to understanding these beatitudes uh, and is found in verses 22 and, and 23. Again, Jesus is not speaking that in the natural realm, uh, all things being equal, uh, that it is uh, preferable uh, to be poor, hungry, and hated as opposed to being prosperous, adequately fed, and loved in the world. That's not the point that he's, he's making here. Here Jesus is speaking to us as his disciples, and he speaks to us about four things that are uh, very much the, portion, uh, the uh, Christian's portion uh, in uh, being a follower of Jesus Christ in, in uh, human history in this fallen world. And those four things involve poverty, involve hunger, weeping, and persecution. And the point that he's making is that not that these things are a blessing in and of themselves, but they, these things are a blessing if these things occur because of our loyalty to him. If this is the world, this is how the world treats us in whatever part of the world we live for him, if this is how the world treats us for being one of his disciples. And you notice there in verse 22, Jesus said, for the Son of Man's sake, speaking of himself. In other words, when we receive this treatment for our loyalty to his, uh, follow him, uh, then uh, it, is, it is a blessing. And he declares there in verse 23, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And so that kind of a life, uh, this kind of life that he describes here, very familiar to the life of an Old Testament prophet. And uh, as you're probably aware, 
they had a pretty tough uh, go of it. A lot of rejection, a lot of reviling, a lot of, a lot of hardship and deprivation uh, as, uh, as a result. And so uh, here he's telling us that we are much better off uh, being poor and hungry and persecuted and to be following Jesus than having a life of comparative ease and not being a part of, of his kingdom. And so that's what's meant by uh, being blessed in, in all of this. He says in verse 20 there, blessed are you poor. And so he, he doesn't say blessed are the poor here. He said blessed are you poor. And, and so he's not saying that poverty in and of itself is a blessing. He's not saying that at all. Uh, but historically, and not just historically, but all around the world even yet today, these four things are the portion of virtually every Christian in different nations around the world. This isn't just uh, theory. This isn't just something uh, that, uh, that is, is uh, hypothetical. Uh, in many, many parts of the world, th- this is the portion of Christians. The Bible teaches that as we obey the Word of God, uh, there's a prosperity that ensues uh, related to that. It is the way to live. It is the way the entire creation has been put together. It's how we cooperate with God's uh, creation. It's how we've been made. And so, all things being equal, a Christian will prosper, will not suffer these kind of things uh, anywhere in the world, but not all things are equal. Uh, you put yourself in North Korea or China or many, many, uh, all of the Islamic countries in the world today and many, many other nations besides uh, in uh, Africa, North, uh, South America, on and on and on that it goes. And so this is, so often this becomes the portion we're not allowed to prosper because the whole game is set up uh, against us. And so... Here he uh, tells us that whatever we may have or not have in the material uh, uh, realm in the world, that as we live the Christian life because we are Jesus' disciples, whatever uh, lack we may have, we are greatly uh, blessed. So you put the blessing. I mean, we all would like to have a little more than a little less on things. Um, But how rich are we to be saved? How rich are we to be forgiven of our sins? How rich am I to have a personal relationship with God? How rich are we to sing with absolute confidence, longing for the day of the Lord's return, and the absolute confidence that one day we will be in heaven? So even in the midst of of poverty and and deprivation of that kind, uh, there is still a cause for blessing, and especially when we find ourselves in that deprivation because of our faithfulness uh, uh, to God. The idea that it's better to be poor in this world and citizens of the kingdom uh, of God than to be rich in this world and uh, not know God. In verse uh, 21, he addresses, blessed are those uh, who uh, hunger now, for they shall be filled. And here we have the promise that 
uh, Christians who live a life of persecution against them, of sacrifice, self-denial as a part of, of fulfilling uh, God's calling upon their lives as Christians in, in the world, that all of that is going to be rewarded one day. Certainly going to be w- rewarded at the marriage supper of the Lamb following the rapture of the church. And uh, ultimately, uh, it is going to be uh, reminded, w- uh, rewarded with that, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into uh, the joy of the Lord. And so here is the reminder. So here we are, Christians in the United States of America. We have great privileges w- by having a Christian heritage in this, in this country. But the Bible is read by the entire world, uh, Christians all over the world, And here's the reminder that whatever our portion might be in terms of hunger now, that uh, in this life, that a a full glory, full blessing uh, of heaven, that it it awaits us. And that's a beautiful thing to internalize into our our lives. We we so um, are so focused in a materialistic culture in terms of uh, judging our weight, assessing our, um, our blessings and uh, on the basis of physical and material things that sometimes even as Christians we can forget how truly blessed we are in, in ways that can never be taken away from us. In verse 21, he talks about, blessed are you uh, who weep now, for you shall laugh. And so this is, uh, refers to the emotional toll that this world takes upon a Christian. And the emotional toll that this fallen world takes upon a Christian is greater in some ways than the emotional toll that the world takes on someone who isn't a Christian. In the sense that um, we look at the world uh, in a, a, a mad, uh, and certainly our, <clears throat> our country, running away from God. We see, I mean, what do, you, what do you need to see in your inner cities in terms of the breakdown of them? How many homeless do you need to see before you figure out that uh, drugs and alcohol are a problem and that drugs might not be a victimless crime uh, uh, someplace? And so we see so much pain, we see so many lives being destroyed, so many of them being destroyed unnecessarily on the, on the basis of all kinds of, of, of sin and giving to sin. And we know that all of that could change if somebody would turn to the Lord and yet they don't turn. Uh, so many, and, and emotionally that weighs upon us. The fact that our hearts are, uh, and minds are planted in heaven, uh, this place is a strange place because we're strangers here and we're pilgrims here. And all of that dynamic, the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit, uh, cre- creates this kind of a dynamic of weeping. If it's not outward, then it's certainly inward in, in our lives. And so all of this stuff that we see with the eyes which we, with which we, we see them 
it, it is, uh, produces that weeping within our lives that the world will know nothing uh, at all about. And that suffering that we face additionally in terms of persecution, in terms of spiritual warfare, and so forth. He says in verses 22 and 23, Blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, revile, and cast out your name uh, as evil. Now that's a mouthful. Uh, it's one thing to see the verses on the pages, and it's one thing, another thing to be in that place. And that's my portion as a Christian within a family or within a, uh, within a workplace or within an entire nation uh, of, of the world. And again, as we saw this happening for the Son of Man's sake, persecution for simply being a follower of Jesus Christ. We do have to be careful, I think, as Christians. Um, Christians are, um, well, the old King James describes us as a peculiar people, and I would never argue against that uh, proposition. And some are more peculiar than others. And we have to be careful to, uh, that this is persecution for being uh, Christ-like in a situation and not persecution uh, from our family or workplace or wherever for simply being odd or being uh, odd as a Christian. And, and uh, uh, th there's plenty of that that, that, uh, that goes around. But here is, uh, again, the reminder of the eternal uh, perspective here. Our reward will be great in heaven. Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You say, who made the Apostle Paul such an authority on heaven? God did. So the third heaven said what I, what, not just not what I saw, what I heard up there, I won't even try to communicate to you because it would mar it, it would spoil it. You'd come away with a wrong, uh, I, can, I can't put the, the, a sense of, of the glory of it, uh, the majesty of it in, into words. And... Uh, and the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be uh, compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. When he gets into verse 24 through 26, this is one of the things that makes this sermon different from the Sermon on the Mount. Because in this sermon, he also includes four woes. He's included the Beatitudes here, and now four woes that are spoken to us as Christians. And uh, these woes are not found in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but woe to you who are rich, uh, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did for so did their fathers uh, to the prophets. And so, this progression of woes. And what he's talking about here is the warnings to us as Christians against achieving wealth, achieving comfort, pleasure, popularity by means of compromising the Word of God. There's nothing wrong with these things when God brings them into our lives 
uh, when we're living a life of no compromise. But here it's talking and a warning to us as Christians not to compromise God's Word or a relationship with Him in order to uh, gain these things. And so uh, the blessed life, and just stark clarity, uh, the blessed life has a, a, a counterpart, and it is the woeful life. And uh, it's good to look at them and just uh, each of the dangers and ask uh, just between us and the Lord whether these things have become a part of our own lives as Christians and to uh, whether they are a source of compromise in our lives uh, this evening. And so Jesus here, he speaks to those who are un- refuse to give up everything that is required in order to follow him and be his disciple and to walk faithfully to him, with him. So verse 24, woe, are you who are, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, the only wealth that such a person will know will be in this life. There'll be no reward in heaven for a life of compromise and, uh, and, and no reward in heaven for hoarding all of uh, 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 our wealth uh, for ourselves alone. When he declares there in verse 25, woe to you who are full for you shall hunger. In other words, uh, they will hunger on the day uh, in heaven when faithfulness for Christian living and Christian service uh, is, uh, is rewarded uh, because of their life of compromise. 20, verse 25 further, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. And this refers again to the Christian who compromises uh, their Christian witness for the sake of seeking pleasure and uh, seeking uh, fun. And Jesus says, Jesus says this, uh, not some quack like me. Uh, Jesus says that it's going to end one day in sorrow and regret. And he warns uh, uh, related to that. Verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And so uh, you don't want this kind of popularity when everyone speaks well of you. Because if everyone, we want a few people to speak well of us, (laughs) you know. But if everybody speaks well of us, then it's usually an indication that we have compromised the Word of God in in order for that to happen. I do not want anyone in the abortion industry to ever speak well of me. there, There are people that oppose us in life and they're supposed to oppose us in life. They're supposed to recognize us as the single great obstacle to the agenda and the advancement of sin, whatever the sin is that they want to bring into the world and into the culture. So if everybody is speaking well of us, then something's wrong. Uh, Paul said something very similar to it when he wrote to Timothy, and it's something a minister needs to be especially aware of. And he said, yes, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, There will be people who 
uh, just hate us because we are Christians, though we have personally not done anything uh, wrong uh, to them. And so Jesus gives the warning. If that's the case, then to look at my life and to see, ah, when I get around these people, ah, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And I turn it up here, and then these other people over here, well, I won't talk about these things over here with them, and I kind of dim my Christian life and, and all of it, and I'm just kind of working, working the thing because I want everybody to like me. And that's a strong addiction. And I want everybody to speak well of me. And Jesus says, it's a woe. It's a woe. It, it, it's, it, it's an, it, the only way that can happen is through compromise. And then Jesus addressed what are to be our attitudes towards other people in uh, verse 27 uh, on, uh, on all the way to uh, verse uh, 38. And so, again, here's how we're to conduct ourselves in our interactions with the world as ambassadors uh, of the kingdom of God. And uh, it, it's it, one of the things that we have to do when we come to, to verse 27 here is to, just to remind ourselves that uh, Jesus intends these things to be taken seriously. And one of the things that happens to us very readily in, in this part of the sermon is to just look at it and say, that's impossible. Nobody can take this seriously. I mean, nobody can live that. Nobody can, uh, can do that. This is all just, uh, this is just the ideal that we should always kind of be creeping our way toward as Christians, but really with no uh, realistic thought of it actually characterizing our our lives this side of heaven. And so we just read them like so many proverbs and they're in one ear and out the other. And yet he's dropped dead serious about it. That's, that's not how he wants this sermon uh, to be received. And what happens is if I take, and wow, when we get into these things, it, it, they're, they're really demanding. And we can look and say, well, that, it just can't, it can't be done rather than to look at them and say, the degree to which I think that is impossible for my life is the degree to which I have yet to discover the power of the Holy Spirit in my life or brokenness within my life or intimacy with God in my life. Not to reject this standard with my own standard that's much more comfortable to live with, and so it's important. And I, I preach to myself related to that, the tendency to just dismiss it and rather than look and say, uh, Lord, I, that, that looks impossible uh, to me, and it is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit, and uh, that has never marked my Christian life, but I want it to. I want every part of this sermon to mark my life. And so what you have to do for me to no longer put that in the impossible and thus I don't have to think about it category to where I take that seriously and I want you to make me into this person. Uh, that's the way that, that we want, uh, want to look at it. In verse 27, he said, but I say to you 
uh, who, uh, who hear, love your enemies uh, and do good to those who hate you. So he calls on us to love our enemies. The word love is agape, and that's a Holy Spirit love that he provides. And so to love our enemies requires the power and the love of the Holy Spirit that he would pour through, uh, through our lives. And we don't love our enemies because they're lovable. We love them because we have a desire to be like God. In, in representing him uh, before them. And then not only uh, to love our, our neighbors, but to then do good to those uh, who hate us. Well, if you thought loving your neighbor was hard and uh, recognize that as being impossible apart from the Spirit, uh, this is the, the same thing. And yet to stop and realize that if I want it, and I mean, we'll always, always be growing in these things. We're never going to be exactly like Christ in this life. But to realize that God is willing to do a work in my spirit as, as, an, as an ambassador of Christ that will bring me to a place where I will actually love my neighbors and I will do, love my enemies rather and do good to those who hate me. And then he said, bless those uh, who uh, curse you and pray for those who spitefully uh, use you. And so not only are we to reta- uh, refrain from verbal re- retaliation against people that come against us verbally, but we're to speak blessing, we're to speak uh, peace and grace back uh, to them and then pray for those who mistreat us. Well, that's the easiest of the four that we've seen so far. Um, who else can we talk to about people that are like this in our lives than the Lord? And who can give us that kind of counsel? Who can remind us of an eternal perspective that makes this worth doing? Remind us that uh, this life is not the only life that we, uh, that we are going to know or enjoy. There's a life that's on the other side uh, of all of this, where all of this will be uh, rewarded. And then he says, And to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic uh, either. And so here we're not to uh, retaliate against somebody uh, and, and come down to their level. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to go out in the middle of some kind of a situation and let a person beat us to death. And uh, that's not what it's talking about. When somebody would uh, be, uh, for a person to be slapped on the right cheek by a person who's right-handed, they'd have to be slapped with the back of the hand. It's talking about an an insult. We have uh, within our culture, uh, we we talk about, well, that was a slap to the face uh, uh, when when somebody insults us. And that's what he's he's talking about here. And so, this isn't something that's being done to produce a physical harm in someone. This is somebody's doing this to us in order to, to shame us and, uh, and, and, and mis, uh, humiliate, uh, humiliate us. And so, what's to be our response? Return our head and offer them the other cheek. Give them the opportunity to insult us uh, uh, further. And uh, so Jesus is telling us we're not to retaliate against verbal insults and uh, offenses of, of that kind. The natural response, of course, is 
I don't need to explain it to you, anyone, is to uh, repay offense with offense. But um, how unique would that be in the world as an ambassador of Christ? The whole world operates that way. That wouldn't show us to be any kind of a different person in, uh, in that situation. Now, somebody might look at it and say, well, Christians are just going to look like a bunch of wimps if they, you know, take this kind of stuff seriously. And I think you're dead wrong related to that. Uh, because when they slap you or insult you uh, in this way, in doing so at that moment, they take charge of the situation. And everybody who's watching knows it. They know it. But when you receive that and then you offer them the other cheek, you retake control of the situation in a way that is far more powerful than punching them in the nose. And everyone will recognize it. Because the idea is not to win people physically. The idea is to win their hearts and their minds, the people that are watching, the injustice. And it will be an injustice when people insult us as we live this way. And, and God is wanting then for people again to see a, a, different, a, a citizen of a different kingdom in all of this. There's something, uh, truth is uh, self-authenticating. Uh, uh, truth is self-evident. And when somebody slaps a Christian across and insults one way and you turn the other cheek and allow them to do it again and take charge of the situation, what happens then is everybody who is watching it realizes who's right and who's wrong because truth is truth and right is right even if they can only define it by their conscience. And then the thing breaks up and it walks away and everybody looks and says, well, he got slapped three times or insulted three times and I guess the bully won. Not as long as a person uh, extended uh, the other cheek because people walk and they go home and they don't forget about something like that. And they realize that takes a very strong person to stand in that situation and not come down to their level. And again, we're trying to be a spiritual influence in the world, and, and that's what it is that, uh, that is required in, the, in regard to insult. He says in verse 30, Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away uh, your goods, and uh, do not ask them back. So here he's talking about uh, giving freely into genuine need. In, in people's uh, lives. And so Jesus is addressing giving, uh, borrowing, uh, generosity here. Uh, Jesus isn't saying uh, to uh, give to anyone and everyone who asks anything and everything of us. Otherwise, everyone would learn uh, what day of the month we all get paid and hunt us down. And ask for the entirety of the paycheck. That's not what he's talking uh, about here. Uh, 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 and it doesn't do anybody any help to give people money who are going to use it in a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction or whatever other gambling addiction. All the addictions that are within the culture, it would be completely wrong. 
to reinforce them in that, that activity. So he's not talking about that. And, and, he, and he's not saying that we should lend to anybody and everyone who wants to borrow uh, from us. I mean, that's, that's warned against in the book of, the book of Proverbs. So you have somebody who's lazy, who's unwilling to work, they're idle as can be, and, uh, and, and, and yet they, they, they want us to support them in that we do that kind of person uh, no good in supporting them in that condition. Uh, the, the Bible says that if a man will not work, then he shall not eat. Hunger ultimately becomes a highly motivational uh, thing in a person's life. Everybody can understand it, no matter how thick or lazy uh, they are. And, uh, and so it's, it's not declaring that, that we're supposed to do that. But it, it is important for us as Christians that we do not become as a group or individually, that we do not become people who never give to others uh, ever that we never lend to other people in, in their uh, need. That would be a misrepresentation of the kingdom of God. And there's plenty of people that you have the, the working poor. Uh, they're hustling, holding two jobs, doing all these kind of things, and yet they are poor and, and resources going that way. People that are laid off, illnesses come in and can completely wipe an individual out. And it doesn't need to just be money. It can be a lot of things, but it certainly includes money. And so Jesus is saying that if we aren't giving or we aren't lending as a Christian, uh, at least as some part of our life, then we're living too close to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth like the rest of the world in, 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 in our lives. And we need to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings. Don't do it to try and, uh, uh, you know, uh, to go out and do it out of guilt or to earn some kind of a spiritual button or a badge but to look and say, boy, Lord, I don't really, nothing flows out of my life toward anyone and in the face of incredible need that I see uh, around me. And so I want you to, to direct me by your Holy Spirit uh, in, in this way and giving and lending as a witness to the fact that I am a part of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't need to be a lot of money. Just a small little sum of money, the right situation can make all the difference for a person. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. And then in verse 31, and just as you want uh, people to do to you, you shall do to them likewise. The golden rule. Also in the Sermon on the Mount. And the golden rule, just, it, just, it, it tells us as Christians, you want kind of a, um, a, a, a quick, easy way to, to understand how to handle yourself in a situation. Look at the person in front of you. Put yourself in their shoes and then ask yourself, if I were in their shoes, what would I want someone like me to do for me and then to do that thing? And it's a rule of thumb that, uh, that is very easy. You don't have to memorize the entire Bible, but to operate from that rule of thumb is almost always to land. Uh, exactly in line with what the Scriptures teach us to, to do and to be uh, in, in uh, given situations. But he says, verse 32, but if you love those who love you, 
What credit is that uh, to you? Oh, rats. I mean, that was... Verse 32a was my life verse. Loving people that love me. He said, for even sinners love those who love them. Now, there's no distinction in a life like that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? I mean, that's just justice. That's eye-for-eye stuff. Uh, For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those uh, from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners uh, to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. It reveals us to be sons and daughters of God in this world, uh, for uh, He is kind to the unthankful and evil. There's nothing about that list of things that we've just looked at. Every aspect of it is a description of God. And I want to be a description of God. Uh, I, 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 I want to be like God, like I see the guys on TV. You wave your hand and people are slain in the Spirit. Not really. I don't really have a, a need for that kind of thing uh, in my life. But there's a lot of kind of glamorous ways to be, you know, like God. And we gravitate to all of that. But this is all a part of being like God and thus to represent Him. Uh, in the world as well. But these, we keep these under, in the, we keep them in the back room, this kind of stuff right here. Unless you're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then you got to say something about them. And therefore be merciful, because God is like this, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and the idea isn't that we, we shouldn't uh, use discernment in weighing a situation or looking and. Uh, 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 Somebody has just uh, broken into your car in San Francisco, which is like a a rite of passage uh, of some kind at this point in time, and that you, I can't, I can't judge them. I I can't really say whether that was right or wrong for them to do. That's not what it's talking about at all. It means, to not judge means not to judge people's motives or their attitudes. Uh, We're free to judge them on the basis of their fruit. Uh, that, That rounds out the sermon. But I must never look at someone and say, I know what they're thinking. Uh, I know why they're doing that. Because almost always we will be wrong. And we're called not to judge. And he says, you will not be judged. So when you have a person, not only related to God, but you have a person uh, in in our interactions with one another. And you are a person who is a non-judgmental person toward other people and people recognize you to be that kind of a person, then they will be far less hesitant to judge you. And, and that's, that's what happens. It goes on, uh, condemn not. Don't condemn people, and you will not be uh, uh, condemned. And uh, forgive, and you will be forgiven. And so if a person is a forgiving person, and you're known for being a forgiving person, people have received your forgiveness over and over again, well, one day you and I are going to need uh, their forgiveness in some respect, and they will be far more inclined to extend uh, forgiveness, non-condemnation, non-judgment to us when we have been uh, that 
uh, uh, to them. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured uh, back to you. And so, uh, as he speaks here, we're to be people who give, that we're known for being generous towards other people. And again, we will find that in our hour of need, after we have been generous to other people, they will be far more inclined than to be generous toward us. To say nothing of what is also included in the verse, and that is that God will be generous uh, to us as well. And he spoke, uh, uh, verse 39, he spoke a, a parable to them, and he said, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? And of course, uh, they will. They didn't have train, you know, uh, seeing eye dogs in those days or uh, these kind of things. You were, if you were a blind person, you needed to be led by someone with sight. And it wasn't like they had uh, Kalosha or they had all of these standards for sidewalks and buildings and uh, the sewers ran right through the side of the roads and all this kind of thing. Not the, the world that we have. To be a person who is blind is very vulnerable in, in that culture. Always vulnerable, but very vulnerable in that, that culture. And the, the, the last person that would be helpful to such a person would be another blind person. And, uh, and so uh, here he, he's talking uh, uh, about uh, the, the, the fact that uh, speaking of our inability to help another person concerning sin if we are practicing the same sin. How can I help uh, lead a blind person or a person who is in bondage to sin if I am in bondage to the same uh, kind of of sin. So someone who is, makes a practice of a particular sin is incapable of leading people out of, uh, of sin. They're both blind. They're both in the same condition. No one is in a superior spiritual condition to help uh, the, the other person uh, out. And, uh, and so uh, the, the importance of who we make our influencers in life who we, uh, who we go to to guide us out of our spiritual blindness or whatever might be happening uh, in our life. And, and, uh, and, and so, you, if you don't choose carefully, you find someone who is as, uh, as in bondage to sin as you are, you're both going to end up in a heap. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Again, be careful about who you make, and in, we are to be careful to who we make our influencers in uh, life. And because the disciple will always become like the teacher. And of course, that's one of the great things about being a Christian. Jesus is the teacher, and so we are progressively becoming more and more like Him. But in our interactions with one another as Christians, to be very careful about who we allow to speak into our lives, who we allow to be an influence in our lives, and to look at their lives to see uh, whether their spirituality, their relationship uh, with the Lord is one that warrants giving them that kind of a position within our lives. And he said, why do you uh, look at the speck in your brother's eye, little piece of uh, wood sawdust that's in your brother's eye, but you don't perceive the plank 
or the log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, hey brother, hey bro, uh, let me remove the speck that is in your eye. Uh, and Jesus said, when, yourself, uh, uh, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye, hypocrite, first remove uh, the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, a piece of sawdust and a plank, they're made up of the same thing, aren't they? Uh, a plank is just a much larger version uh, of a, a speck of sawdust. And so, here is a person whose life is completely dominated, plank-wise, by a particular sin in their life. And usually when our life is dominated by a particular sin as a Christian, it shouldn't be the case, but if it is, uh, then we notice even a speck of that sin in other people's lives. And we think we're going to go help them because we're such an expert on it by virtue of this gigantic plank that we have uh, in, in our eyes. But we'll be of no help in, in, uh, in uh, helping people towards purity and, uh, and towards a quality Christian kind of life uh, unless we deal with uh, these very same things in our life. We should never bring someone uh, into our, uh, bring in as an influencer into our lives anyone who is dealing with the same sin uh, and is failing in a greater measure than we are. That's not the person that uh, is going to be able to offer us any help but to find somebody other than them to help me out of uh, getting that speck uh, out, of, uh, out of my eye. And then he said, for a good tree does not bear uh, bad fruit, and nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. And uh, for every tree is known uh, by its fruit. Uh, for men do not gather figs from thorns. They gather figs from fig trees, don't they? Uh, not from uh, blackberry bushes, and nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. And so the fruit always uh, reveals the root, as the old saying goes. And so when you see good fruit, it means the inner life of the person, the root of the person is good. When you see bad fruit, it's an indication that uh, the, the root of the person uh, spiritually speaking, is, is not good. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the mouth, uh, out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. And then Jesus closes with this very strong, uh, really <laughs> strong exhortation here. Um, the, 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 the gift of exhortation is disappearing today. And the voice of the prophet, in my opinion, is disappearing in Christianity in the United States uh, today. And, uh, and it concerns me because, as I've said before, I'm such a, such a knucklehead that I need exhortation to keep me on the straight and narrow. I need clarity. I need to be challenged. I need to be warned. I need all of those things. I need encouragement too, but I need this. And Jesus isn't afraid to close with, with exhortation. It's healthy for us. And so he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not the things that I say. And here is this great danger that Jesus is addressing that was all around the audience that he was speaking to, even among his disciples. Because among the scribes and the Pharisees, they um, calculated their spirituality. They determined their spirituality on the basis of how much they knew rather than on the basis of how much they knew and then how much of what they knew they actually put into practice. And it's very easy to begin to live in our head as Christians. They say, well, I've heard probably 50 sermons on uh, that passage, or I know this, or I was in seminary and I learned systematic theology under Chafer or whoever, like nobody learned, I was top uh, of my class. And this tendency to, to self-deceive, to, th- to say, I am spiritual solely on the basis of how much I know. And Jesus is going to blow, he's going to pop that balloon. Because spirituality, again, is marked by what we know and then how much of what we know is actually put into practice. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, and hears. The hearing is important. The knowing is important. Hears my sayings and does them. It has to be coupled with doing. I will show you uh, whom he is like. He is like a man building a house. And he dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. That's as sure as it gets. And when the flood arose, the stream beat uh, 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 vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. So he describes the Christian who now as he closes the sermon, he says, I, again, he says, I don't want to just be preaching sermons. So now you know these things. I want, I want you to know them, but with a sobriety that I also expect you to obey them. And he says, anyone who obeys his teaching is, is going to build their life. He uses a house to, to describe our life. Is going to build your spiritual life on something that is rock solid and immovable as, as we obey His Word. You don't have to be, we don't have to be smart to be rock solid and stable as a Christian. We don't have to be talented. We don't have to be anything. All we have to do is just be obedient and it, and it keeps us safe, and it keeps our life uh, stable. And then Jesus said, there's another side to this, but he who uh, heard and then did nothing is like a man who built his house uh, on uh, the earth. Uh, you know, imagine building a house on sand or building it on just the, the wood right on the ground uh, it, 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 without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and uh, the ruin of that house was great. And he says all of this to simply drive home the point. It, it is not enough to know these things for, for us as Christians, but to know them and to also do them. And that's, I need to be reminded of that uh, quite a bit. And, and so he closes with that kind of, of reminder as a mark of true spirituality in 
uh, the kingdom of God. And so we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in chapter 7 next time. Let's stand together, and we'll close in prayer and, and in a worship song. Well, Father, you have not only heard what I have said tonight, but you living inside of us as Christians know how all of this hit our lives individually. What was an encouragement? What was an exhortation? How we processed it? You're aware of all of it. And we do pray individually for ourselves, but we pray for us as a church body and all of the Christians that are in this room with us and in the courtyard and and at home, Lord, wherever home is. And we pray that You would um, help us to not put a sermon like this in the ideal category or the impossibility uh, category and then choose to live our Christian life way below the Christian life that is available to us. And we surrender our lives to You tonight, and we pray that where we fall short of what properly represents You in this world and our lives, that You would speak to us about that by Your Spirit, and that You would lead us into growth in that area. We commit this time in Your Word now to the continued ministry of Your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.